And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome everyone to the podcast. Let's call this episode number 67 for argument's sake and the podcast for the month of January if we happen to get it out by then. One thing we do know for certain... It's a manhouse! A manhouse! That's right, Bright Eyes. So the only thing we can do in times like these is to have a show about Spam, Pez, and Valencia Oranges. And that's what we have for you tonight. The history, the glory, and the fun facts pertaining to these three tasty treats. Uncle Frank... What do we fill in the edges with tonight? We have a short interview with the Top Gun pilot who chased a UFO in his F-18, a song formation tune about the manufacture of glass, the original story that led to a great classic Twilight Zone episode, and more things, of course. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started with the variable-voiced Candy Candido. Get no bread 
with one meatball. One meatball. One meatball. You get no bread with one meatball. The little man, he felt mighty sad. That's one meatball was all he had. Now in his dreams, he hears the call. You get no bread with one meatball. One meatball, one meatball, you got no bread with one meatball, one meatball. One meatball, you got no bread. With one Ball. Morgan David Wine, take one. Here's how you buy it, here's how you give it. Glamour wrapped for you to give in gleaming foil. It's a wonderful present for friends or business associates for the holidays or any time. A decanter of Mogan David wine. Now you can buy wine in a pre-wrapped carton at no extra cost. Pure Concord Grape Mogan David wine. 19 seconds. Take two. Here's how you buy it. Here's how you give it. Glamour wrapped for you to give in gleaming foil. It's a wonderful present for friends or business associates for the holidays or any time. A decanter of Mogan David wine. Now you can buy wine in a pre-wrapped carton at no extra cost. Pure Concord Grape Mogan David wine. <coughs> Take three. Here's how you buy it. Here's how you give it. Glamour wrapped for you to give in gleaming foil. It's a wonderful present for friends or business associates for the holidays or any time. A decanter of Mogan David wine. Now you can buy wine in a pre-wrapped carton at no extra cost. Pure Concord grape Mogan David wine. Spam can make the hot boy delish. Spam can grant your spam seasick wish. Spam can spaghetti party. Spam. No, not internet junk mail. I'm talking about the canned pork product that took the world by storm. Yes, Spam. Very few people know the meaning of the name. Supposedly only a select cadre of Hormel executives. Most people think it stands for spiced ham, but World War II veterans thought it meant special army meat because of the amount of Spam placed in their rations during the war. 68,000 tons of it. The British got their fill as well, and referred to it as special processed American meat. And it wasn't just for use for sustenance. The grease in it was used to oil guns in a pinch. The tins from Spam became recyclable scrap metal, 
and the very name sunk into the war culture. The ships that took part in the Normandy invasion, for instance, were known as the Spam Fleet. Outside the military culture, there have been other suggestions for what Spam stands for, like scientifically processed animal matter, or shoulder of pork and ham, which might be close to the truth, because back in 1937, July 5th to be exact, Spam was first introduced to make pork shoulder into a more popular product. Nowadays, though, Spam has reinvented itself. The Hormel Company now says Spam stands for Sizzle, Pork, and Mmm. Spam. Don't knock it till you've fried it. Sizzle, pork, and mmm. Because of World War II, Spam spread throughout the globe. Not just because the troops traded with it and used it for gifts, but also because it became part of direct relief to people such as the Russian army and all through the Pacific, especially to post-war Japan. Because of rationing and the cheapness of Spam, sales blew up around the world after the war. By 1959, a billion cans have been sold. Over 40 countries sell Spam now. In the U.S., the biggest consumer is Hawaii, where they call it Portuguese steak, and it's sold at Burger King and McDonald's. The Hawaiians love it so much that there have been Spam crime waves where cases of Spam were stolen in a single heist. You won't find surfers in Montana. And you won't find the Spam Platter served with egg, Spam, and rice only at Burger King Hawaii. Korea is the real king of Spam, though. South Korea eats and produces more Spam than any other country outside the U.S. To accommodate the Spam customers around the earth, Hormel has come up with different varieties, like Jalapeno Spam, Hickory Spoke Ham, Spam Pumpkin Spice, Spam Macadamia Nut, Spam Portuguese sausage, not to mention Spam low sodium and Spam light. And that's just a sample. The original epicenter of all this spamness is a 12 square mile piece of heaven known as Austin, Minnesota. This is the place where George A. Hormel opened his slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant back in 1891. 46 years later, his son Jay produced the history making product, and Austin became known as Spamtown, USA. It now sports a Spam Boulevard and a restaurant, Johnny Spamarama. But best of all is the Spam Museum. Simply glorious. 14,000 square feet of dioramas, artifacts, interactive exhibits, and unintentional kitsch. Included is the world market with areas designed to look like different countries where Spam is consumed. Can Instruments an exhibit where musical instruments are made out of spam cans, and a kid's play area with a sign above it reading, Kids Can Play. It's lovely. Spam, you've come such a long way, from the depression to the feeding of the troops to feeding the world. You may be bad for our heart, but you've captured it nonetheless. Spam. Yes, Pemi, we
everyone knows Colonel Sanders by the white suit he wears With a black string necktie and his snow white hair There's a twinkle in his eye and with a wink he'll tell you hi Y'all come to see the Colonel by and by All the kiddies come running when they see the Colonel coming And he loves them one and all, don't you know? I did five cruises to the Gulf. I started right after Desert Storm. 
I had an entire squadron. I had 12 airplanes and 330 people. This is mine. This is what we typically flew at night. You can see these little brackets here. November 14th, 2004. It's a clear blue sky. There's no wind. And you see this tic-tac. It's just this white object that's randomly moving around. It makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. I remember telling my back seater, I said, dude, I don't know about you, but I'm a little weirded out. It's not a helicopter. It doesn't have rotor wash. There's no propulsion. There's no wings. It rapidly accelerates and disappears. Like, poof, gone. Weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. I chased a UFO. But I like to just crawl back under a rock and be myself again. Yes. I'm doing an event uh, in McMinnville, Oregon uh, this weekend. I have not been in public about this. I have no idea what to expect. I'm fine with people's fascination as long as you just leave me alone. I'm not, I am not a, I'm not a, I'm not that kind of person. We've experienced some things ourselves. Um, I've seen three UFOs in my life. I've seen many. I've seen orbs. I've seen stationary lights. I thought I saw something in the room that I was uh, sleeping in. I've seen lights that are not flashing or blinking, just kind of slowly moving across the sky. And what I saw was shaped, it was lengthy. We're about to see the, the Tic Tac UFO incident account, which is, in my opinion, one of the most credible UFO accounts that there is. Hey, you do. Come on, pull it open. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a pretty good crowd. A little shocked I got that many people here, but... You might discover you really love this and do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> well, we were on a, we had launched on a routine training mission. Uh, when we joined up, we were told that the event was going to be canceled and that we have real world tasking and we were sent out to the west. Now, take in mind that this has taken place about 100 miles southwest of San Diego between San Diego and Ensenada, Mexico. Yeah. Uh, on a clear, perfect day, blue waters. We get out to the spot where they tell us it's at. Um, we start looking around and both of us, both airplanes, see a disturbance in the water and a white 40-foot long tic-tac shaped object just hovering above the water. Going forward, back, left, right, there's no rotor wash, there's no wings, nothing. So as we drive around in a clockwise flow, we get to about the nine o'clock position and I said, well, I'm gonna go down and check it out and the other jet is gonna stay high. So as we go down, at, when we get to the 12 o'clock position, it starts to mirror us. So it's in a clockwise flow and it's on the opposite side of the circle from us. And we continue this. It's in a climb, we're in a descent. We're getting a great look at it. This whole thing takes about probably up to five minutes from the time we show up. I get over to the eight o'clock position. It's at about the two o'clock position. And I decide I'm gonna go and see what it is. And it's about 2000 feet below me. And I cut across the circle. And as I get within about a half mile of it, it rapidly accelerates to the south in about two seconds and disappears. What, what would you estimate the speed? 
Oh, well above supersonic. It, it like a bullet out of a gun, it took off. So from what you know about aerodynamics, mechanics, physics, uh, should this be possible, what you saw? Not with the technology that we have today. Not, not at all. Even now, even 13 years later, is there anything that you know of capable of this kind of behavior? No, there's nothing I know of. I mean, this when you look, when we saw the, the video with the IR, it has no exhaust, uh, it, you know, no, no discernible things of anything, form of propulsion. And this thing came from a dead hover over the water, just kind of moving around to a climb up to about 12,000 feet to rapidly accelerating away in a climb. And in less than two seconds, it was gone. And you figure you're talking 50 miles of visibility and you can easily see an object that size easily out to 10 miles and it just disappeared in seconds. Honestly, if you want the truth, stroke your ego a little bit. You know, that's kind of cool. You know, they're all here to listen to me, but some people want to tell you their life story. I kind of hint to keep them moving. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Let me jump down here. Sorry. There's a big line. I know how you feel. It's just sort of an unreal feeling, isn't it? They call me the paranormal warrior, so I thought I'd okay. give you a card. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm trying to write a comedy book about a successful UFO landing, and I don't know if it'll happen or not, but you know. It's coming up on Beer 30. Pleasure to meet you. Finally, someone who's actually up there, flying around, they see this, and they've kind of, they're tracking it, they're trying to chase it down. And, and hearing how he explains them, that's exactly how I felt. And, and we're always told we're crazy. say you are wondering why I am floating around London like this. I am on the famous Thames River investigating a murder. Rivers can be very sinister places and in my new film Frenzy this river you may say was the scene of a very horrible murder. It's a woman! Another necktie murder. Of course, one can never be sure where danger lurks. They tell me a dreadful crime was committed right in this building. My investigation next led me to this innocent alley, of which there are hundreds in London. But I don't think we should stay long. Something unpleasant is about to happen.
What started off being marketed as replacements for cigarettes, then was reinvented into a kid's candy, and now is mostly bought for its packaging? Well, Pez, of course. Those tiny, brick-like, mildly flavored candies that come out in cool dispensers. There's not just fun, though. They're profitable, too. Pez brings in over $25 million in revenue each year. They're part of every American's childhood, from the baby boomers to Generation Z. But of course, they're not American. And originally, they were just for adults. In 1927, while Hitler was in his quiet period in Bavaria, Edward Haas III gave birth to Pez in Austria. They were round peppermints back then, which Edward called Pez drops. Pez coming from Pfefferminz, the German word for peppermint. He took the P from the beginning of the word, the E from the middle, and the Z from its end. And then you had Pez. Originally, they came in a tin and were marketed to adults for flavor, breath, and quitting cigarettes. They took off. Eight years later, they needed a bigger factory and built one in Czechoslovakia. By then, the candy attained the oblong shape we all know and love today. But Pez still only came in mint and still sold only in tins. And that's how things stayed until after the war. In 1949, they put out Pez candies in the familiar dispenser, a device invented by Oscar Uxa. It held 12 candies, just like the ones today. In the 50s, when Pez opened up operations in the U.S., fruit flavors were added to help market the candy to kids. But in 1956, the biggest innovation was added, dispensers with character. The first was a space gun, of course. It was the 1950s. It looked like a cool black squirt gun, and it was a hit. Who wouldn't want to shoot themselves in the face with candy? Then there was a robot and a Santa. Not just the heads, but the whole bodies, full figures. The first three-dimensional head on a dispenser came in 1957, and it was the witch. Now the Pez we all know had arrived. In 1958, the first licensed character, which was Popeye, was put out, and the floodgates were open. Pez heads of every kind as far into the future as you could see. Characters from Disney to Star Wars were licensed eventually. The Mandalorian and Child are out right now. And characters were created just for Pez. There were the Pez Pals, for instance, in the 60s, a guy who was supposed to be in different disguises, which was a great excuse to sell different Pez dispensers. The Pal is a cop, the Pal is a doctor, a sheik, a knight. They all came with little comics, too, and stickers could be bought to decorate the sides of your dispenser. The 70s even brought us interchangeable rubber heads for the dispensers. At first, for the most part, the creativity was saved for the dispensers, not for the candy itself. The flavors and shape stayed mainly the same. There was some experimentation in the 60s, of course. There was licorice, coffee, and then there was chlorophyll. What that tastes like, I don't know. But you can't say they weren't pushing the envelope. Now, of course, all bets are off. There's cotton candy and candy corn and cola candy, vanilla cupcake and sugar cookie, chocolate candy, all kinds of sour candies. And then there's something called candy mystery flavors. It's to go with the Harry Potter dispensers, sort of like an every-flavored jelly bean takeoff. All of it is great fun. So that's our praise for Pez. Pez candy and its unlimited dispensers seem to be going strong, and will, I'm sure, survive this pandemic, political troubles, and future tastes, much like us. Three, two, one, fire! And there he goes! The first man in space!
the Coco Martian, Pez Space Trooper. Look, he's on the moon. He's on Mars. And it's always handy when it's time for Pez Candy. Just fill him with the Pez Candy refill. Gee, he's fun. Have one. And now the greatest free offer ever. Two free gifts. The Coco Martian Pez Space Trooper and a Pez Candy refill. Yours absolutely free when you buy Coco Marsh. They're attached only on Coco Marsh. You know how good chocolatey Coco Marsh is in milk and ice cream. It's real delicious. Cause it's real chocolatey. So don't wait. Be first to get these two free gifts. Coco Marsh and Pez Space Trooper and Pez Candy Refill at your store now. disturbed by the plow, the satanic essence of evil wreaks violent and revolting revenge. But it weren't human, sir. There were fur. Then it was an animal's remains. It were more like some fiend. And the evil grows quickly, attacking first the youth of the village and making them the devil's children. Ralph, look. Look. Oh, God, I prayed I'd never see that again. That's what they call the devil's skin. Doctor, witchcraft is dead and discredited. Are you bent on reviving forgotten horrors? How do we know, sir, what is dead? Blood on Satan's claw was like a horrible disease. Highly contagious and deadly dangerous. Hail, Bear Moth, spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy Bear Moth, father of my life, speak now, come now, rise now from the forest, from the fa. <laughs> Blood on Satan's Claw stars Patrick Wymark as the judge who tries the devil, Linda Hayden as Angel Blake, daughter of Satan, Barry Andrews as a victim but innocent, Michelle Dotrice as the devil's child, and James Hayter as the village squire. Thou stole my master's skin, thou shalt pay with thine. <sighs> I think thou could be saved. <laughs> Dogs know how to tear the devil's heel. Thou telltale bitch, thou set the dogs on me. Of course I didn't. Art thou ready to give thy skin tonight? Art thou ready? Blood on Satan's claw. Do 
Golden oranges of Spain, the daughters of the sun. Yes, these are the real daughters of the sun. 
the oranges of Spain, are born of the union between the sun and this revered land which unfolds itself along the edges of the historic Mare Nostrum. The flowering orange groves blow their scent over Spain and fill the land with the riches of a fruit only equaled in paradise. Precious orange trees were sought from afar to take root in Spanish soil. They were born over the paths of the sea from the distant east and welcomed by Spain's Mediterranean coasts. oranges take more than a year to ripen, so blossoms and fruit share the same branches. And now these two kinds of western oranges, the Valencia, which ripens in the summer, and the navel, which is picked during winter months. Both get their completely natural brightness from ripening right on the trees. It takes from four to five years to bring an orange grove into production, just getting the land ready for planting is a big undertaking, carried out with large equipment. The land is cleared and leveled. Snow on the mountains, flowers around the ranch house, and a golden harvest ripe on the trees, all at the same time. Oranges are picked only after they are tree ripe. Unlike most other fruit, they can remain on the trees in perfect condition for a long time after they are ripe. So picking goes on during every season of the year. After picking, the big job is to get the oranges from the grove to the market quickly. First they go to the packing house with its railroad siding. But there's a lot to be done before the cars are loaded. These oranges are about to get the bath of their lives. Warm, sudsy water. Rub till they sparkle as they move over spinning brushes. Now a clear, cool shower. Brass rollers drain off the water. And warm air dryers finish the job. But being clean and bright still isn't enough. Sharp-eyed experts look at each orange to make sure that only the best move along to the cartons, which will hold the finest grade. On their way, automatically separated according to size. As you see, getting oranges to market is much more than hauling them from the groves to the neighborhood store.
oranges. Magic Spanish oranges. You are the daughters of the sun. Time Enough at Last by Lynn Venable For a long time, Henry Bemis had had an ambition. To read a book. Not just the title or the preface or a page somewhere in the middle. He wanted to read the whole thing, all the way through from beginning to end. A simple ambition, perhaps. But in the cluttered life of Henry Bemis, an impossibility. Henry had no time of his own. There was his wife, Agnes, who owned that part of it that his employer, Mr. Carsville, did not buy. Henry was allowed enough to get to and from work, that in itself being quite a concession on Agnes's part. Also, nature had conspired against Henry by handing him with a pair of hopelessly myopic eyes. Poor Henry literally couldn't see his hand in front of his face, for a while, when he was very young, his parents had thought him an idiot. When they realized it was his eyes, they got glasses for him. He was never quite able to catch up. There was never enough time. It looked as though Henry's ambition would never be realized. Then something happened which changed all that. Henry was down in the vault of the East Side Bank and Trust when it happened. He had stolen a few moments from the duties of his teller's cage to try to read a few pages of the magazine he had bought that morning. He had made an excuse to Mr. Carsville about needing bills in large denominations for a certain customer, and then, safe inside the dim recesses of the vault, he had pulled from inside his coat the pocket-sized magazine. He had just started a picture article cheerfully entitled, The New Weapons and What They'll Do to You when all the noise in the world crashed in upon his eardrums. It seemed to be inside of him and outside of him all at once. Then the concrete floor was rising up at him and the ceiling came slanting down toward him, and for a fleeting second Henry thought of a story he had started to read once called The Pit and the Pendulum. He regretted in that insane moment that he had never had time to finish that story to see how it came out. Then all was darkness and quiet and unconsciousness. When Henry came to, he knew that something was desperately wrong with the East Side Bank and Trust. The heavy steel door of the vault was buckled and twisted, and the floor tilted up at a dizzy angle, while the ceiling dipped crazily toward it. Henry gingerly got to his feet, moving arms and legs experimentally. Assured that nothing was broken, he tenderly raised a hand to his eyes. His precious glasses were intact, thank God. He would never have been able to find his way out of the shattered vault without them. He made a mental note to write Dr. Torrance to have a spare pair made and mailed to him. Blasted nuisance not having his prescription on file locally, but Henry trusted no one but Dr. Torrance to grind those thick lenses into his own complicated prescription. Henry removed the heavy glasses from his face. 
Instantly the room dissolved into a neutral blur. Henry saw a pink splash that he knew was his hand, and a white blob come up to meet the pink as he withdrew his pocket handkerchief and carefully dusted the lenses. As he replaced the glasses, they slipped down on the bridge of his nose a little. He had been meaning to have them tightened for some time. He suddenly realized, without the realization actually entering his conscious thoughts, that something momentous had happened, something worse than the boiler blowing up, something worse than a gas main exploding, something worse than anything that had ever happened before. He felt that way because it was so quiet. There was no whine of sirens, no shouting, no running, just an ominous and all-pervading silence. Henry walked across the slanting floor. Slipping and stumbling on the uneven surface, he made his way to the elevator. The car lay crumpled at the foot of the shaft like a discarded accordion. There was something inside of it that Henry could not look at, something that had once been a person, or perhaps several people. It was impossible to tell now. Feeling sick, Henry staggered toward the stairway. The steps were still there, but so jumbled and piled back upon one another that it was more like climbing the side of a mountain than mounting a stairway. It was quiet in the huge chamber that had been the lobby of the bank. It looked strangely cheerful with the sunlight shining through the girders where the ceiling had fallen. The dappled sunlight glinted across the silent lobby, and everywhere there were huddled lumps of unpleasantness that made Henry sick as he tried not to look at them. "'Mr. Carsville!' he called. It was very quiet. Something had to be done, of course. This was terrible, right in the middle of a Monday, too. Mr. Carsville would know what to do. He called again, more loudly, and his voice cracked hoarsely. "'Mr. Carsville!' and then he saw an arm and shoulder extending out from under a huge fallen block of marble ceiling. In the buttonhole was the white carnation Mr. Carsville had worn to work that morning, and on the third finger of that hand was a massive signet ring, also belonging to Mr. Carsville. Numbly, Henry realized that the rest of Mr. Carsville was under that block of marble. Henry felt a pang of real sorrow. Mr. Carsville was gone, and so was the rest of the staff, Mr. Wilkinson and Mr. Emery and Mr. Prithard, and the same with Pete and Ralph and Jenkins and Hunter and Pat the guard and Willie the doorman. There was no one to say what was to be done about the East Side Bank and Trust except Henry Bemis, and Henry wasn't worried about the bank. There was something he wanted to do. He climbed carefully over piles of fallen masonry. Once he stepped down into something that crunched and squashed beneath his feet, and he set his teeth on edge to keep from retching. The street was not much different from the inside. Bright sunlight and so much concrete to crawl over, but the unpleasantness was much, much worse. Everywhere there were strange, motionless lumps that Henry could not look at. Suddenly he remembered Agnes. He should be trying to get to Agnes, shouldn't he? He remembered a poster he had seen that said, In event of emergency, do not use the telephone. 
your loved ones are as safe as you. He wondered about Agnes. He looked at the smashed automobiles, some with their four wheels pointing skyward like the stiffened legs of dead animals. He couldn't get to Agnes now anyway. If she was safe, then she was safe. Otherwise... Of course, Henry knew Agnes wasn't safe. He had a feeling that there wasn't anyone safe for a long, long way. Maybe not in the whole state, or the whole country, or the whole world. No, that was a thought Henry didn't want to think. He forced it from his mind and turned his thoughts back to Agnes. She had been a pretty good wife, now that it was all said and done. It wasn't exactly her fault if people didn't have time to read nowadays. It was just that there was the house and the bank and the yard. There were the Joneses for Bridge and the Graysons for Canasta and charades with the Bryants and the television, the television Agnes loved to watch but would never watch alone. He never had time to read even a newspaper. He started thinking about last night that business about the newspaper. Henry had settled into his chair quietly, afraid that a creaking spring might call to Agnes's attention the fact that he was momentarily unoccupied. He had unfolded the newspaper slowly and carefully. The sharp crackle of the paper would have been a clarion call to Agnes. He had glanced at the headlines of the first page. Collapse of conference imminent. He didn't have time to read the article. He turned to the second page. Solon predicts war only days away. He flipped through the pages faster, reading brief snatches here and there, afraid to spend too much time on any one item. On a back page was a brief article entitled, Prehistoric Artifacts Unearthed in Yucatan. Henry smiled to himself and carefully folded the sheet of paper into fourths. That would be interesting. He would read all of it. Then it came, Agnes's voice. Henry! And then she was upon him. She lightly flicked the paper out of his hands and into the fireplace. He saw the flames lick up and curl possessively around the unread article. Agnes continued, Henry, tonight is the Joneses' bridge night. They'll be here in thirty minutes, and I'm not dressed yet, and here you are, reading. She had emphasized the last word as though it were an unclean act. Hurry and shave. You know how smooth Jasper Jones's chin always looks. And then straighten up this room. She glanced regretfully toward the fireplace. Oh, dear, that paper, the television schedule... Oh, well, after the Jones leave, there won't be time for anything but the late, late movie, and... Don't just sit there, Henry. Hurry! Henry was hurrying now, but hurrying too much. He cut his leg on a twisted piece of metal that had once been an automobile fender. He thought about things like lockjaw and gangrene, and his hand trembled as he tied his pocket handkerchief around the wound. In his mind, he saw the fire again, licking across the face of last night's newspaper. He thought that now he would have time to read all the newspapers he wanted to, only now there wouldn't be any more. 
that heap of rubble across the street had been the Gazette building. It was terrible to think that there would never be another up-to-date newspaper. Agnes would have been very upset. No television schedule. But then, of course, no television. He wanted to laugh, but he didn't. That wouldn't have been fitting, not at all. He could see the building he was looking for now, but the silhouette was strangely changed. The great circular dome was now a ragged semicircle, half of it gone, and one of the great wings of the building had fallen in upon itself. A sudden panic gripped Henry Bemis. What if they were all ruined, destroyed, every one of them? What if there wasn't a single one left? Tears of helplessness welled in his eyes as he painfully fought his way over and through the twisted fragments of the city. He thought of the building when it had been whole. He remembered the many nights he had paused outside its wide and welcoming doors. He thought of the warm nights when the doors had been thrown open and he could see the people inside, see them sitting at the plain wooden tables with the stacks of books beside them. He used to think, then, what a wonderful thing a public library was, a place where anybody, anybody at all, could go in and read. He had been tempted to enter many times. He had watched the people through the open doors, the man in greasy work clothes who sat near the door, night after night, laboriously studying, a technical journal perhaps, difficult for him, but promising a brighter future. There had been an aged, scholarly gentleman who sat on the other side of the door, leisurely paging, moving his lips a little as he did so, a man having little time left, but rich in time because he could do with it as he chose. Henry had never gone in. He had started up the steps once, got almost to the door, but then he remembered Agnes, her questions and shouting, and he had turned away. He was going in now, though, almost crawling, his breath coming in stabbing gasps, his hands torn and bleeding. His trouser leg was sticky red where the wound in his leg had soaked through the handkerchief. It was throbbing badly, but Henry didn't care. He had reached his destination. Part of the inscription was still there, over the now doorless entrance. P. U. B. C. L. I. B. R. The rest had been torn away. The place was in shambles. The shelves were overturned, broken, smashed, tilted, their precious contents spilled in disorder upon the floor. A lot of the books, Henry noted gleefully, were still intact, still whole, still readable. He was literally knee-deep in them. He wallowed in books. He picked one up. The title was Collected Works of William Shakespeare. Yes, he must read that sometime. He laid it aside carefully. He picked up another. Spinoza. He tossed it away, seized another, and another, and still another. Which to read first? There were so many. He had been conducting himself a little like a starving man in a delicatessen, grabbing a little of this and a little of that in a frenzy of enjoyment. But now he steadied away. From the pile about him, 
he selected one volume, sat comfortably down on an overturned shelf, and opened the book. Henry Bemis smiled. There was the rumble of complaining stone. Minute in comparison with the epic complaints following the fall of the bomb, this one occurred under one corner of the shelf upon which Henry sat. The shelf moved, threw him off balance. The glasses slipped from his nose and fell with a tinkle. He bent down, clawing blindly, and found, finally, their smashed remains. A minor, indirect destruction stemming from the sudden, wholesale smashing of a city, but the only one that greatly interested Henry Bemis. He stared down at the blurred page before him. He began to cry. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men and Henry Bemis. The small man in the glasses who wanted nothing but time. Henry Bemis, now just a part of a smashed landscape. Just a piece of the rubble. Just a fragment of what man has deeded to himself. Mr. Henry Bemis, in the Twilight Zone. So ends another podcast. Uncle Frank, what's the one last thing tonight? Well, with the coming of 2021, we have the official adding of new words to the English dictionary. Words like adulting, social distance, and tech lash. So we thought it would be fun to go back to 1972 with a song about their new words, followed by a 70s commercial for splurging with Unicard. So this is Uncle Frank. And this, of course, is your old pal Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. The
Card, card, 